Welcome to the Tactics Meeting, Episode 14, Marine Salvage, with Todd Duke from Resolve Marine. I'm your host, Dan Smiley, and here on the Tactics Meeting, we review best practices, response tactics and tools, and talk to subject matter experts to bring you the best information in the marine oil spill response industry. In this episode, we try to demystify the business of marine salvage, look at the contracts under which salvage is performed, and talk about clauses such as scopic. Let's get started. Welcome to the Tactics Meeting. Today, we're really fortunate to have Mr. Todd Duke, General Manager of Compliance Services for Resolve Marine to talk to us about the business of marine salvage. Todd, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'll just introduce myself a little bit. Uh, I've been with Resolve for going on 22 years now. Um, I originally started out in the U.S. Navy as a damage controlman all sorts of engineering work and, and that sort of stuff. And, and from there, I became a, a firefighter and got into the uh, civilian fire department role and, and then into the industrial firefighting setting because the industrial departments paid much better and, and it was more about firefighting and less about medical things like you find in the, in the municipal fire department setting. And so there I wound up running Resolve Fire School back in 1999. Um, Resolve started in the 1980s and in 1990, uh, OPA 90 came about. And so part of the Oil Pollution Act of 1990 was uh, to make sure that there were contracted salvage services. And, and Joe Farrell, the the owner of Resolve um, decided that they needed a, a marine firefighting school because uh, most of the people that he worked with didn't really know much about firefighting, particularly on ships. And so in 1992, they set about building a, a fantastic marine firefighting structure down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, um, inside Port Everglades. And, uh, in 99, I was selected to run it and, and came in and got most of their courses, U.S. Coast Guard approved for Merchant Mariners. So taking the basic and marine firefighting course um, at one of the various schools around the United States, um, you know sort of what we were teaching, um, as well as a little bit different structured approach for teaching the salvers and the divers and, and the people that were responding um, different types of uh, marine firefighting tactics so that when they went on board a ship fire, um, they were familiar, they were knowledgeable and and weren't going to, to hurt themselves. So yep. uh, I've taken that course. I took the basic and advanced. I needed it for my mate's license. Right. So uh, if you if you went to Fremont, um, I did. I went to Fremont. That was the first one. India Tango, it was at the time. Um, that that structure was built a whole lot on the, the same structure as down there in Florida. So uh, myself and, and John Kirchhoff, the, uh, the former owner of my, uh, Fremont, um, we used to trade ideas an awful lot, you know. 
So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I took my original basic and advanced there. I took one refresher there, and then I did a refresher up at North Bend. Now you need to come to Florida and take a refresher. I should come to Florida and take a refresher. I skipped my last refresher. I just I went ahead and let the STCW portion of my license lapse. So I'm now only only carrying the domestic side of the license. But I don't sail anyway. Right. Yeah, those I looked at the structure on the website. It looks like an amazing school there in Fort Lauderdale. It is. And we've had about 30,000 mariners come through in the last 20 some odd years. Uh, it uh, primarily um, is suited for, as, as far as merchant mariners are concerned, um, um, obviously the cruise ship crews and uh, the uh, mega yacht crews, um, simply because that's, that's the primary types of vessels that are around the South Florida area. But uh, yeah, we've, we've had tons of experience. That's one of the only, maybe the only Marine firefighting school in the United States that's MCA certified, which is the uh, UK Coast Guard. Um, and that's mostly due to the, the mega yacht crowd that, that they service. So. Is that more stringent than the US requirements or is it just different? Um, it's a little bit different. Um, you know, it, it's a, a little bit different uh, a certification scheme, obviously. And we have, would have UK members come over and do audits and that sort of thing. The interesting thing was from an educational level, US Coast Guard requires a multiple choice examination so that as uh, an auditor comes through, they can quickly take a punch card key, you know, and look and, and double check the examination answer sheet to make sure that that people are passing the test to the way that they're supposed to. The UK takes a different approach and, and requires um, um, a large part to be a written exam. And that is kind of tough on the instructors because you just can't throw that key up there and look, you got to actually read it and think about it and decide whether or not uh, the students actually grasp the concept of whatever they're talking about, you know, because it's all essay type answers. So that was probably the, the, the biggest difference, you know, and a little bit of nomenclature, you know, but I can tell you, you know, fire pretty much burns the same way here as it does in Asia or the United Kingdom, wherever you're at in the world. Physics pretty much stays the same all Pretty across much. the globe yep. sure so tell me a little bit about salvage what what how would you define salvage what is a salvage so um yeah salvage is kind of pretty much uh saving something of value that's one of the the key factors in in commercial salvage is is uh, saving something of value a lot of times um, people confuse salvage with, with other types of, uh, of uh, maritime emergency response, but, but we've actually kind of moved into the maritime emergency response role. One of uh, my colleagues came up with the vague assumption based on debatable figures taken from inconclusive evidence performed with instruments of problematic accuracy by persons of 
doubtful reliability and questionable mentality. So that's often how we define salvage. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's basically a, a, a vessel that's in peril and, and a person coming along and to be true salvage, it has to be voluntary. So I'm coming along and I find a vessel in peril and I take some action to help save the life and the property um, and the value that's, that's built into that ship. Um, well, I, I take it in tow, I pass it some pumps, I come aboard and I help fight the fire, that kind of thing? All of those things, you know. Um, you know, uh, uh, a lot of times, you know, it's, it's, it's just doing different things. You know, I, I've uh, seen cases where someone was awarded simply because they had a screwdriver available and they tightened the clamp, but tightening that clamp stopped that vessel from flooding and therefore they saved something of value. So, so you'd say we're, we're awarded. So that's really one of the key pieces of historical salvage, right? I, I now have, I come along, I voluntarily assist you in, in saving something of value and saving your vessel. And I am then awarded for that action, a portion of the value of the thing I helped to save. Is that a, a fair statement? Yes. And yeah. I, I remember reading this story. It's a great book called uh, Yonder is the Sea, mm -hmm. full of sea stories. And it tells the story of this uh, passenger liner captain. I think in this story, he worked for the White Star Line. And due to um, foggy weather, unexpected currents, anyway, he ended up holding the, the vessel. And a tug came ripping out of the fog. And the story goes that you know this tug captain had been waiting his whole life for this opportunity for salvage, right? And he's offering a, a, a tow line and the captain wanting to not give away the value of the vessel in salvage yells at him quite harshly to stay away from his ship. And then he proceeds to de-ballast and drop his anchors and, and uh, do all these things to finally get it back off the off of the rocks, but he didn't accept the salvage, right? It has to be voluntary. It's got, it's got to be voluntary. And, and so there's, uh, there's what's called the, the black wall factors. Um, and, and these are some, some, when a, a arbitration panel looks at, at the case, um, if it's a, if it's a true Lloyd's open form case an arbitration panel, will look at it and they will, they will look at those black wall factors. And, and those are, um, the degree of danger the vessels in, um, the value post casualty. So how much of the cargo, how much of the bunkers, how much of the vessel was saved, um, how much risk was incurred in saving the property from, uh, whatever peril it was that it was in. So um, obviously if, if I'm going on board and putting out a, a fire and I'm doing an interior firefighting, if you will, my life is at a greater risk trying to save this vessel than my earlier example of a guy with a screwdriver tightening up a, uh, tightening up a, uh, a, a hose clamp to stop some flooding. So um, what sort of 
what sort of risk am I incurring as the, as the salver? Um, what kind of uh, skill and energy displayed in order to uh, render the salvage service? You know, so firefighting obviously is is takes a little bit more skill and a whole lot more energy than just simply tightening up a, a, a clamp. Um, the value of uh, the property that, that's employed by the salver. So, for example, once again, firefighting, you know, I've got $1,000 suit that I'm wearing, a $3,000 SCBA that I'm wearing, hose, pumps, uh, you know, all of this expensive equipment versus a guy with a screwdriver. Um, so what what's the value of, of what I'm bringing to bear? Um, and, and then once again, the danger that I expose my equipment to, you know, so um, in the example that you're, you were giving, you know, um, I bring my tug out there. Well, um, one rogue wave is my tug going to wind up over there on the rocks, the, the same as this, uh, the casualty vessel. Um, and so certainly if that's the case, then, then the arbitration panel will look and, and perhaps give me more money. And then of course, the, the overall cost in terms of labor and material that that these salvers have expended in rendering the salvage or this aid. So, you know, how much fuel did I burn? How much oxygen did I burn? How much uh, was the tow line that I used? You know, all the different consumables that we put in as well as, as uh, how much effort and amount of people that we put towards the problem, you know? Yeah. And so, um, this is time honored. This has been around for hundreds of years, but it's changed a little bit, particularly in 1989, the International Salvage Convention updated the International Salvage Convention in 1910. And so a safety net was added for salvers. So for example, in the case that you're, you were referring to, the, the, the vessels on the rocks, it's being pounded. The salver comes and and the idea is wait we need to lighten this vessel to refloat it okay we've got a, a major hurricane coming so we need to hurry up and and refloat this vessel really quickly or else we're going to lose all of our value you know because now we're going to have uh the vessel's going to be broken apart and and so years ago and i have never been a part of something like this, but years ago, they would jettison fuel, just pump the oil right over the side because, hey, taking weight off the boat. Now get it out, get it refloated. Um, can you imagine that happening today? No, no. Today you're going to jail for that. Exactly. I mean, today half of the val half of the reason maybe most of the reason for the salvage activities is to prevent the environmental damage it's exactly. not even to save the vessel necessarily the the cost of the environmental damage may exceed by orders of magnitude the value of the vessel so stopping that environmental damage that's goal one would you agree with that Exactly. And that's where we've changed a little bit and we became more focused on saving the environment or preventing damage to the environment. 
And, so no more pumping fuel overboard. Well, and or you know, one of the things that you know, oftentimes you just like, okay, go out there, get me ten tugs, grab hold of this, and just pull it off. And sometimes that works. Sometimes they rip the bottom out, tear a fuel tank open, and eh, you know, fifty tons, a hundred tons, thousand tons of fuel gets dumped overboard. And well, you know, no more of that either. Now you will see that uh, oftentimes we will sit and we will bring in lots of people and lots of equipment and we're there. Our sole focus is to remove that fuel first before we even think about pulling this thing off the rocks and taking this fuel out. So we're preventing that environmental damage. So these things are, are new things that are being taken into account now as we, as we move into a more environmental and conscious world, if you will. So early salvage was about rendering assistance voluntarily, but today, almost every vessel, maybe every vessel, certainly every vessel trading in the United States is required by law to have a pre-identified salvage contractor yep. that is available to be called. So that's not really voluntary anymore, is it, right? You've agreed in advance to provide services for salvage. So how does that change the dynamic? Do you still get awarded part of the value? Are you now doing it uh, with fixed rates for a job? How did that change salvage? So so it has changed a little bit and there's there's still a couple of uh, couple of different types. There's, there's a number of different types of contracts out now. First off, let me state that I'm an operations guy. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a commercial guy. So that is a really good point. I'm going to tell everybody, neither one of us are lawyers. We don't play a lawyer on TV. We are not providing legal advice. Right. So if I don't get this 100% correct, you know, don't shoot me. But, uh, but in, in general terms, so um, we start out with the, the Lloyd's open form, which is kind of the salvage contract where you're still awarded some sort of value now. So let's pause we... there for just a second, even though I own, uh, you know, motor vessel ABC, uh, I cite resolve Marine in my response plan as my salvage and Marine firefighting contractor. So I, I don't know how the fee structure works. Anyway, I, I've done whatever it takes to be able to cite you in my, my plan. Once I activate you, do we, do we still at that point then sign an additional salvage contract? Yeah, so okay. um, under, under OPA 90, the salvage marine firefighting section of the, the regulations, there is uh, the requirement for a funding agreement. Okay, and so the idea is, is there is an immediate response. So we have agreed in Resolve's case, um, the agreement is to utilize scoping rates, which we'll talk about in a moment. But we've agreed that, you know, the call comes in, we will immediately do it a remote assessment and consultation, figure out what problem is, figure out what the needs are and start an appropriate response. Now, that may be simply talking through 
some things with the master. It may be getting one of our engineers on the phone with the master or the chief engineer to talk through some issues. Giving some guidance to the chief officer about rigging tugs and, and that sort of thing, or moving some weight around. This is, all of this is, is determined during the remote assessment where it's just some phone conversations taking place. To actually launching vessels and people and aircraft and lots of equipment going towards a casualty scene. It all depends on what the situation is. But it starts with that remote assessment where the uh, qualified individual or the captain will notify the salver, hey, here's the, here's the case, here's, here's all the information that we've got, and we start building that initial ICS picture, if you will, the, the 201. Um, you know, we start building that so that we've got an instant action picture and figuring out what the problem is and what we can do about it. So that's kind of where it starts. Now, under that funding agreement, it does allow, because the funding agreement is there for an immediate response to make sure that an immediate response occurs. The salvers in the U.S. have basically a, we all have something, some similar wording in our funding agreement that says within the appropriate amount of time that this contract will be negotiated for a, a, a different salvage contract. Because the Coast Guard was, was very clear in their regulation. They wanted an immediate response, okay? Fine, I want an immediate response. You look over here in the case of the insurers, though, the hull of the P&I insurers, all of their lawyers and everything, well, they want an ironclad solid contract. And here the salver's caught in the middle. And it's really hard for both the salver and the ship owner to sign a contract in regards to a casualty that hasn't occurred, may never occur, and that's why you have this funding agreement that guarantees an immediate response. So it kind of looks like if I'm looking at the if I'm looking at this from an ICS perspective, that initial funding agreement and plan citation is kind of like reactive phase, right? Up yeah. to the up to the 201 briefing. Hey, we're gonna we're gonna take your phone call, we're gonna do a remote consultation and assessment, we're gonna activate equipment and start it coming your way. And then at that point we're going to sign a, an actual salvage contract based on the kind of work that we perceive is going to be done. And, uh, you know, so let's talk about real world and the, the case that you and I recently worked together, which will remain unnamed. 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 Um, so that entire response was done under the funding agreement somewhere probably about day four we actually signed a bimco rec hire bimco is uh the baltic intermediate maritime i can't remember what all bimco stands for but anyway the bimco contracts are standard form contracts in the maritime industry that the international group of pni clubs has accepted all the terms and conditions um 
it's been vetted by all the major ship owners and everything. And so it's a, it's a multi-page contract that everybody's vetted. So you don't have to sit there and negotiate 14 pages of, uh, of third-party liability and that sort of thing going back and forth between lawyers. It's already done. Quick fill in the blank things um, in certain boxes that are, that are incident specific. And so after the casualty occurs is when the lawyers want to get involved. And so, so utilizing a BIMCO contract, but as you saw, it did not stop a response. We, we came in full bore with lots of people and lots of equipment and, and was taking care of the casualty while the lawyers are over there in the corner doing their thing. No, you very definitely assumed that other stuff will get taken care of in the background. We're saving the ship. Exactly. You know, saving the ship, saving the environment. Um, But most importantly, the response is taking place um, as the Coast Guard and, and the various other regulatory agencies want it to happen. But, you know, there was, there was a lot of, and, and this is where the whole OPA 90 and, and, and the um, funding agreements occurred was, you know, you know, lots of foreign ships traveling through and everything. I don't, I've got a bit of a relationship with this company, but, you know, I have a hard time getting them to pay my retainer bill, you know, and now they want me to go out on the hook for, you know, a million dollars, $2 million worth of whatever, you know, and it's like, and it wasn't just the salvage community, it was the oil spill response community as well. And so there were lots of people that were hesitant to put their capital at risk, if you will. And so that's where the, the qualified individual company and spill management teams kind of sprung from and, and the ability for them to write checks out of the owner's checkbook, so to speak, you know, and, and to help start the funding of those operations until the right people with the right authority can come over from Singapore or the United Kingdom or, or wherever, you know, the, the owners are from. You know? So it's all about making sure that the response occurs, even if it's two o'clock on a Saturday night or, you know, sun, early Sunday morning. So. Are you more often called by the vessel master <clears throat> or the owner or more often by the qualified individual? Um, I would say it's probably a 70, 30, 65, 35 kind of the QI makes the call and then the vessel master, um, and then we will contact the vessel master because generally, and if you look at the, the vessel response plan, you know, they're supposed to call the coast guard. They're supposed to call the QI state, local a whole bunch of things but but in general um if the vessel master will reach out directly to the qi and then the qi has the the processes in place to make all these other notifications um so primarily that vessel master needs to contact the coast guard and then he needs to contact his qi most of the time the qi will notify us um like i said 25 30 percent of the time we will get a call from a directly from a vessel. Most of that time, most of that is when um, it's a light grounding, you know, and and they're trying to just pull it off themselves, and um, or maybe use a couple of harbor tugs that are close by, and, and 
you know, they want somebody to second, second check them. But anything real, most of the time, the call comes from the QI. They use the uh, uh, Baltic form salvage agreement on the job that we were involved in together. What are some of the other more common or ask common contracts that you do work under? Well, so BIMCO is an organization and they produce most of the contracts. So there's a, there's a tow hire and um, we oftentimes will utilize just the tow hire for an emergency towing operation. So you've got a vessel quite happens quite often happens out here where I'm at out in the middle of the Aleutians has a mechanical casualty. The vessel's really not in much peril. She's just broken out there floating around. Um, unless she's in Unimac Pass. Yeah, unless she's in Unimac Pass, but <laughs> they need uh they need uh, uh you know some some tugs to bring them into the, to port so that they can get uh, get um, repaired. So we'll utilize a tow hire contract, which is the exact same contract that I would utilize if I was towing someone's barge from port A to port B, you know, delivering containers, whatever part. So know, that's so. not really salvage. It's just assistance. No, it's, a, it's assistance. And it's, so a, it's a job. Right. And so that's a but it's one of the contracts that we would utilize. Um, you know, we did a job not too long ago that we went out under a tow con, um, but we left the door open for a salvage claim because of the, uh, the extremely bad nature of potential nature of the weather that we were, that we were facing, you know, and so, um, so like you know, the tug and the crew had to put themselves at, at some risk in order to be able to take this vessel in tow and that additional risk you felt left salvage on the table. Well, exactly. Okay. Or, or it could have if the weather had gotten, you know, much worse the way that the weather can get out here, you know, it's any given day it's six feet or it's 22 feet, you know, just depends on on the day out here in the winter anyway so. yeah my last my last trip for western pioneer across the gulf you know it used to take us three and a half days to go from sand point to dixon interest dixon entrance took me nine days pounding into that head seat 70 80 mile an hour winds we were making less than three knots most of the time so you understand peril <laughs> <laughs> I do. Matter of fact, my last, my very last trip for Western Pioneer, and they had some old ships. We were coming out of Sandpoint um, area, Sandpoint King Cove area, and the we were we were taking on some ice, and the chief engineer went to transfer some fuel internally, and the deck vents for the fuel tanks, the ball valves were frozen, and so he pressurized the receiving tank against that frozen ball valve and it split a seam in the tank so now i've got a four peak full of fuel and because of that i've got a five degree list and once we took on that steady list we were in about it was about 
40, 45 knots of wind, 15, 20 foot seas. Some of the cargo shifted. So now we've got like a seven degree list. Uh, yeah, good times. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They, they, those are the times I live for. But uh, so yeah, so there's a couple other ones. Um, so we talked about the no cure, no pay. Um, Lloyd's open form, which means we don't agree to a price. The the arbitrators will take all those black wall factors and decide what we should get paid at the end of the day. Um, so you're taking all the risk. You're putting out all the expense. You're mobilizing people, equipment, spending tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, Yep. hoping that you are going to be able to provide a cure that will result in an award. Right. But you might not. It might be all loss. It might be all loss or it might be, you know, um, you know, if you don't, you don't save a, a lot of the cargo or, or, you know, you burn up an engine room in a fire, you know, that's, that's the high value part of the vessel is the, is the engine room. You lose that, you know, well, now you got a bunch of scrap steel. You still saved a bunch of scrap, but your awards much, much, much lower. So, so, so at some point you're looking at a guy, I, I hope I'm going to break even on this job. Well, sometimes. Yeah. And so, um, the, the arbitration panel looks at best endeavors and, and when they look at best endeavors, they also look at all the salvers in the world. And quite often they will call experts from, from other companies or other regions of the world. And, and they will say, you know, um, here's the scenario. What would you do in this case? You know, and they'll compare it against what was actually done, you know, and, and, and that sort of thing. So there's a bit of Monday morning quarterbacking, if you will, that goes on as um, this. And then there's also a, a surveyor, if you will. He's called a special casualty representative. Um, he is appointed by the insurer and he comes in and he is technically the vessel owner, if you will, at that particular time. Um, he is there to watch over the salver and make sure that the salvers is, is providing best endeavors. And he's going to take good thorough notes. Most of these guys, well, all of these guys have been vessel masters in the past. Um, many of them have been salvage masters, but, but nearly 90% of them all have been big ship uh, tankers, container vessels, something like that. Um, and they work directly for the insurer of the vessel. So, um, and they're, they're pretty neutral. They, they, they're appointed by the, the, um, um, international, they're appointed by the PNI clubs. So okay. there's 10 or 12 of them worldwide. Maybe maybe a few more, but, but there's not very many, um, and and it's a group of PNI clubs that, that appoint these guys, or or in some cases girls, um, and so they they go out there. They're integrated, you know, as part of the salvage branch, and and 
they sit there and they just document, 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 and and they'll sit down in front of the arbitration panel and say, these guys did a great job, or yeah, I wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have done this, you know, and and all the ones that I've personally worked with, they've all been very fair with me, as best as I can tell, because when they're sitting in front of the arbitration panel, obviously it's it's closed door meeting, so we don't know exactly, but. You know, they also, when I'm going to go and I'm going to spend a large amount of money, um, I go and I talk to this guy. <laughs> I say, um, yeah, we're going to mobilize this, you know, two more tugs because we think we need it. And this is why we think we need it. And he's going to say, yep, I agree. Or nope, you shouldn't be spending that kind of money, you know, because Remember, one of the factors is how much money I personally spent, you know? And so if I'm just spending money willy-nilly to uh, to uh, hopefully raise my award, he's going to call me on it, right? Um, so you have a vested so interest in, in making your response as large as it can be. Yes. Or under, under an LOF. Okay. Under an LOF. Right. Um, but we're also um, professionals. Um, we well, I would never suggest that someone would just throw equipment onto a response for no reason at all. There are companies out there to do that, though. It's much smaller regional ones, particularly in other parts of the world. But, um, um, you know, we know we we have a we have a reputation in the in the insurance industry um for you know uh, blue water insurance the p and i markets mostly and and our reputation is very good and and the other salvage companies uh that are big ones like you know smith and and uh tnt and some of the other larger ones we all have a vested interest in making sure that our reputation stays intact because we do want the next job. <laughs> and and uh, if, if you're felt like uh, you're abusing privilege, then then oftentimes you won't get the next job. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's right. I mean, it's reputation is is everything. And we we watch some organizations and I won't name any uh, during Deepwater Horizon that felt like picking up the golden eggs wasn't good enough. Here was an opportunity to own the goose and they, yep. they really went all out and they kind of had, uh, they kind of had people over a barrel. And so they, they got their goose rates, but when it was over, they never got another job again. Exactly. And so, you know, we all want pie, but you can't have the whole. Take you can't take, have the whole pie. Share. <laughs> That's right. Um, so then uh, when we, because there's a little bit of difference between salvage, which is more kind of emergency response, um, what we're going to do. And then there's there's wreck removal. And, and oftentimes wreck removal um, is um after the salvage occurs or if a salvage really isn't going to occur so we do the environmental salvage so take for example the golden red you know um, 
a company comes in, they assess it, they extinguish what little bit of fire was left, they pull the people off, they did the bulk of the fuel removal. This is all what I would consider salvage. And they made it safe for the environment. Now, okay, let's back up. Let's take a look. Now we're in a wreck removal phase. And which is a whole nother project. Whole nother project. It's got time for engineering, well thought out and everything. And depending on what it is and where it is and 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 a whole lot of different factors, um, companies will negotiate um, with the the insurance underwriters and because oftentimes these rec removals go out for tender and many of them go out lump sum. So they say, okay, here's my wrecked vessel. It needs to go away. Um, how much are you gonna charge me? And so we'll say, okay, it's a thousand dollars just to use a round number, thousand dollars, okay. So if I don't remove that vessel, I get paid nothing. So it's called no cure, no pay, lump sum. So if I, if I do remove it and it only costs me $10, I made $990, right? Um, if it cost me $900, guess what? I made $100, but I still got paid my thousand, you know, and it's, it's, it's based on, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a bidded contract. Most salvers don't like lump sums. Most lump sum contracts will have various clauses out there because you can't predict the weather really. And most areas where a vessel turns into a major wreck removal is in areas that's got the world's worst weather or you know, it's an extremely difficult area to work in due to rocky shores or or that sort of thing, you know, and then just things happen. So lump sums aren't good for really anybody other than the underwriter because he knows it's going to cost him X amount of dollars. You know anything uh, about the removal of the remaining bits of hull from the new Carissa? No, I haven't heard new Carissa mentioned in, in probably five or six years. You know, it's uh it's something that's kind of fell off everybody's radar. So now, cause it was, it was there for years after the oil spill response. And then they went out and uh, got a contract for wreck removal. I'm fairly certain they could only work about three months out of the year on the Oregon coast. And they, they built kind of a temporary pier and breakwater and, and I'm not sure how many seasons they had to work. It was at least two. I wish I knew more about it. I thought you might. Um, so the, the salvage master was a good friend of mine. He's, he's since passed away, but uh, he told me a little bit about it. I, I'm not as well-versed as I should be, other than the fact they built a really cool gondola to get from the wreck to the shore back and forth, you know, and so... Um, but it's, it's things like that, that really drive up some of the cost. I mean, we did the, um, a similar vessel over in, um, in, uh, New Zealand. And I, man, the name's escaping me right at the moment, but you know, most of, most of the steel 
that we pulled off the vessel had to be flown out via helicopter. And that gets hugely expensive. The, uh, the Selendang IU, all the oil had to be flown out via helicopter. Um, you know, and it's just because of the environment that you're actually working, you know, and so it can be done. It's just how much is it going to cost, you know, and so, you know, flying sheets of steel out or, or tons of fuel out or whatever, it's, it gets hugely expensive. Yeah, those are big oh. birds you have to fly to do that. It's not like you're using a Robinson 22 to lift that stuff. Right. Um, so the next type, uh, day rate contracts. And so that's that's probably one of the most common types, day rate or a, uh, oftentimes called a time and material contract, you know. So, um, and I mentioned scopic earlier. So a true LOF, once again, like I said, is, is no cure, no pay. So if the storm kind of hurricane comes along and destroys the vessel and destroys the cargo and everything, and there's really no value left, you get nothing um, unless we declare scoping. Um, and scoping is a special compensation clause, which basically what that does is once the salver declares scoping, his awards automatically lowered um, by about 30%. Um, so if you were going to give me a thousand dollars now, I'm only going to get 700. Um, but um, it does guarantee that I'm going to get paid my time and material rate based on a set published rates that the uh, International Salvage Union publishes every two or three years. They adjust those rates, and uh, and so most uh, OPA salvage marine firefighting funding agreements utilize that scoping rate. Um, so it gives, you know, a, a general rate for tugs and dive equipment and air compressors and pumps and hose and, and all the different types of tools and bits of stuff that we utilize um, for salvage. And so um, what that does though is, and and in a case I was involved in probably 2006, 2007, somewhere in that neighborhood, um, we were doing an LOF on a cargo ship and it was, it was a pretty hard grounding um, in Texas, just stuck in the mud. So pull out all this bulk cargo um, to lighter the vessel and refloat it no big deal except for the fact that there's a hurricane coming up in the Gulf of Mexico. And, and so um, as you're sitting there and you're watching the trajectory path and that cone gets narrower and narrower and, and at one point in time my boss decided it's in our best interest to declare scoping. That way if- Can you do that at any time? Yes up until, I mean, not after the hurricane has passed. You can't look at the Correct. wreck and go, eh, scoping. No, there's, there, there, there still has to be, yeah. You, you can't destroy the thing and then declare scoping. You, you have to do it in advance. So the salver's taking a bit of risk as well, a bit of financial risk as well. Um, and so, you know, we saw it and we're like, you know, if this, the, if this is a direct hit, 
is going to destroy everything and there's going to be nothing left. So, and as we've seen, you know, like I said, this was kind of after 2005 where we had Katrina, Rita, Wilma, and, and 50 other hurricanes blow through the Gulf of Mexico that year and, and pretty much decimate a lot of the Gulf states. And so we're looking at and saying, yeah, it's really not worth the risk. So let's declare scoping. Um, a whole lot of salvage nowadays is based on scoping rates and, and utilization of scoping clauses simply because of the fact that there's a whole lot of environmental things that we have to do um, and things that that um, the regulators require us to do that actually um, goes against the detriment of pure salvage, you know. Um, and so, you know, for example, in a major ship fire, somebody may want to just charge on there and with uh, all sorts of firefighting foam or whatever and do their best to put it out and save all the cargo. Um, that's not necessarily in the best interest of the environment. Um, and, and if they roll the vessel over, it may be putting the environment at a greater risk. Um, but he's doing his best to maximize his reward, right? So the Coast Guard's there standing there saying, nope, you're not doing that. Or the state agency saying, nope, you're not going to do that. Um, or nope, we want you to do something else. That's where, you know, sometimes we're doing things nowadays. And you go that, back to that environmental salvage, if you will. We're, we're doing things nowadays to protect the environment, protect human health. Back in the 1800s, early 1900s, it was all about saving property. Now it's saving people and saving the environment. And hopefully there's some property left at the end of the day. And so um, in some of those, some of those clauses, there may be bonus provisions, there may be some shared costs, the latest operation you and I were involved with, there was quite a bit of shared cost between us and the responsible party, simply because they're very self sufficient kind of people. And so yeah, because it was where it was at, you know, it was much easier for us to utilize some of their existing uh, commercial relationships with people like ammonia people and fuel people and that sort of thing um, instead of those contracts going through me, you know, so. Sure so the responsible off. party arranged for having the fuel removed arranged for having the ammonia removed not something that you had to do you had to coordinate right. with them but you didn't right we we were there as technical expertise or safety people or whatever you know but but you know some of the actual operations that were done by those third-party contractors that was always all arranged by the the third part uh, by the responsible party if you will so um and so that's Sometimes, you know, you're sitting in some of these unified command meetings and the salvers over there going, yeah, maybe. And, and the Coast Guard of the state's looking at him like, how come he doesn't know? And it's because you're waiting on the responsible party sometimes to give you an answer or give you some, some marching orders or, or something like that. Because at the end of the day, the salver works for the responsible party and his insurer. Um, and, and I think that's sort of what's missed. While we take direction from the unified command, 
I actually worked for the responsible party and his insurer. It sometimes puts the salvage representative that's sitting that's in the uh, command post sometimes in, a, in an uncomfortable situation sometimes, particularly when you're trying to be tactful and there's disagreements on, on whatever, you know, whether it be um, an operational tactic or spending money or whatever it is. When we walk into a situation, it's not always, it's, it's seldom ever a good situation. There's property at risk, there's the environment at risk, and, and quite often there's people at risk. So the other contractors are kind of in the same position too, right? The OSRO, their agreement is with the responsible party, not with the unified command. The wildlife rehabilitation people, same kind of thing. So they're all kind of working for the responsible party, but taking direction from the unified command. Where, so where does, where does salvage fit in the incident command system? Where does it belong in the, in the org chart? I know where NIMS says it goes, but then there's some disagreement uh, out there as to where people think it belongs. What are, what are your thoughts? Well, so we predominantly, primarily belong in the operations section, simply because that's mostly what we're doing is we're, we're providing operations. We're doing operations of some sort or another um, and when you look at the global picture of, of a large oil spill response, for example, we've got to work hand in hand with our Osro brothers, you know, because they're putting boom around a vessel or they're doing this or they're doing that, or they're, you know, closing off uh, canals, creeks, waterways that I need open in order to get barges and tugs and and whatever I need for my operation in and out, you have to work together. And so it's, it's always good to have the majority of the salvage as a, as a unit of the operations uh, section. So a, a salvage branch or salvage uh, unit. Um, yeah, I mostly picture it as a, as a branch in operations. Uh, now, not we, as a group, but as a branch generally. We oftentimes will put someone in, in both the logistics and also the uh, uh, planning section. And the reason why is because there's a huge amount of planning that goes into salvage operations. And a lot of it is, is, is extensive engineering. We've got engineers are doing structural analysis and, and all sorts of things and, and going through and making those plans. And, and then once again, like I said, we need to, to take those plans that we're creating and work them in with our brethren over on the Osro side to make sure that we can get this equipment in, that we can conduct our operations so that they don't necessarily hinder whatever's going on on the Osro side. And then on the logistics side, particularly when you get into some of the smaller, more remote areas, salvers tend to create a, a fairly big footprint sometimes, you know? And so let's just talk simple things like tank barges or frack tanks, for example. Come in, there's two tank barges available. 
Well, the Osro wants them all so that he can put all his skim product in it. And the sour wants it so he can take all the fuel off the vessel and put it in there. And there's only two and the next two are like, you know, 10 days away or whatever. So what do you do? Where do you go? Who gets the barge? And so that's why, you know, a salver needs to be part of logistics section so that, uh, you know, he can voice his concerns. He can voice his needs. Cause I've, I've actually seen it and, and you brought up BP. BP was probably the worst that I've seen it, but I've seen for, it for salvage. You mean? Well, for logistics problems. And I've seen it happen after hurricanes as well, where the local vendors, they know what they got. They know they're the only game in town. And so they'll turn around and they'll be, they'll offer the barge to resolve for $1,000 a day. They'll offer it to NRC for $1,200 a day. Then they come back and say, oh, NRC is going to offer it for $1,200. So I'm going to offer it to you for $1,300. And they'll sit there and they'll play this game back and forth between the Sauber and the Osro. You know, and all that's doing is driving up the cost of the response. And I've seen it happen. And, I've, and I saw it happen extensively at BP, especially some of these guys were coming out of the upper Midwest with boom and this sort of stuff. You know, and the area that I was working in, there were three main sites and, and all the site manager, I was a site manager and then there was a site manager from two different companies in the other two sites. And we used to call each other, you know, all right, here comes so-and-so. He wants, you know, $10 a foot for this boom. <laughs> call me back and let me know what he offers it to you for, you know? And, uh, and so that's where that logistics section and making sure that there's representative from the Osro, representative from the Salver, representative from the various different branches from the operations section are represented so that we're not, bidding against each other and that sort of thing, you know? If a response is primarily salvage, let's say for the sake of argument that oh, we haven't actually spilled any oil yet. We've mobilized our Osro due to the threat of environmental damage, but at the moment it's primarily salvage. Would you envision uh, a person from salvage asked, say the op section chief or a deputy op section chief as opposed to a branch director in that case? Um, so we've always left it to the Coast Guard. Um, I, have, I have been the deputy op, uh, op section chief more than once. Um, in my experience, the op section chief has always been a Coast Guard person, generally the chief of IMD um, for whatever sector that, that you're in. But I, I have been the deputy op section chief simply because that's the person that, that, you know, you're in the command and general staff meeting, you know, okay, operations, the lieutenant will stand up. Yeah, so we've got this going on, and Todd's going to tell you about what's going on in salvage, you know. And so then I give my brief, you know. And, and it's sometimes, you know, they will just brief from, from the various groups or whatever you want to call them, you know. Um, in the case that we work together, the incident commander would look at me and say, okay, 
tell me about the firefighting operation. And then he'd look at the guy from the Osro and said, tell me about the oil spill response operation. Okay. Now we'll move on. You know, I don't ever see us progressing beyond maybe the deputy op section chief. Quite frankly, you'll never see us as a member of the unified command, even though, I, as we talked about earlier, there, there is a, a, a case to be made that under the LOF, the Salver or the SCR, if you will, actually is more guy that's responsible for that vessel, particularly if it's kind of like a chartered vessel, because it gets really, really great whenever you're looking at a vessel that's chartered. And so the, the BRP holder is the charterer, but he just turns around and hands the vessel back to the to the owner and says, oh, this is your problem now. The response still occurs underneath that particular VRP. And so it gets really weird. Um, and so that's why sometimes LOFs are more preferred because during the entire casualty situation, they look at that salvage master as being the vessel master. Is it um, simplistic to say that once you've entered into a Lloyd's open form of agreement that the salver in the person of the salvage master for practical purposes becomes the owner of the vessel i wouldn't say owner but i would say the vessel master and that's kind of why we call them a salvage master and most salvage masters have been vessel masters in the past so you've signed this open loads form you the, we have the vessel master there with they'd be in the salvage branch would the vest would the salvage master be the branch director or would you have somebody else as the salvage branch director so typically we have someone else do that and the reason why is because that salvage master has got a lot of things on his mind and a lot of responsibility and a lot of he doesn't have the time really to sit through a lot of the meetings that are required to function properly under ICS. And oftentimes you will see a salvage company and they're running a little mini ICS off to the side. Well, that is a model that I've seen. That is really the, the other model is those who see the incident command system as being primarily responsible for oil spill, wildlife mitigation, environmental cleanup, while the salvage is looked at as a separate project that then gets a liaison to the incident command system. Now, I'm not sure that I agree with that approach, but that is one way people have depicted it in org charts and whatnot. And and I've seen that too. And, and thankfully, we're merging more towards the center. And, and a lot of that is based on a couple of things. One, a lot of us salvers that started out in the United States come from the U.S. Coast Guard background. So they're former Coast Guard officers, naval architects, uh, or operations people. Right, strike team members. Right. And so we, we tend to attract a lot of those guys um, after they're done with their service. And they know ICS. They do. That has worked in our favor, bring us a little bit closer together. And then, and then the other thing is, like I was telling you, um, was, was resources. We all lean on third parties in the town that we, that the incident occurs. When you've got a primary Osro and a primary Salver, and they're both calling the same guys, looking for the same equipment, 
you know, it's, it's, it's driving the cost up or, or whatever, you know, and it's not good for the instant. Um, and so that's another reason why we needed to come together and be a part of that, because that's the whole reason for ICS in the first place. That's right. That's if right. Go back to, to fire scope. And, yep, yeah. exactly. Right. A single, a single incident action plan, a single response organization and a single purchasing department through logistics and finance. Yeah. Right? Not two, not three, not five, but one. So what's involved in the rack uh, process? When, when someone calls up and they are activating their plan and they're looking for ro remote uh, consultation and uh, assessment, what does that look like? So we have a uh, we have a form that we will send out to the vessel. The vessel master will call our uh, duty officer and talk to them, and the duty officer will send them a a form. It's got some basic information about the the vessel. And it's really to give us a basic idea of what's going on. Uh, we take that form, our duty officer takes that form and pushes it out to the salvage master that's on call. Oftentimes it's a grounding. So I wanna know pre-sailing drafts and I wanna know post-casualty drafts. In a few hours, I'd really like to have a, a thorough set of soundings that we're taking since the casualty occurred. Way too often we get stuff that you know well here's the soundings that the chief engineer took on sunday you know last time he checked all his fuel tanks and everything you no know, i, I want to know what these tanks look like now pre-casualty and, and post-casualty uh draft readings are really really important and the accuracy i can't stress enough the accuracy there was a uh, a propane barge that had had uh, a large amount of uh liquefied propane on board broke the toe and went aground down in the Florida Keys. So based on the pre-sailing drafts and the grounded drafts that we had, I was gonna to have to take about 10,000 pounds of, of propane off this barge in order to refloat. And so we write the plan up, we get uh, the Coast Guard to buy off on it, we got the local fire department to buy off on it and everything, you know, cause you know, think about this, I got a big propane barge and I'm fixing the to light a bunch of flares on top of it. Is that how you lighted it? You flared it off? Yeah. I mean, what else are we going to do? Because there's no way of getting another barge to it. Or, But interestingly enough, we never did flare it because as we're doing the planning and everything, I'm actually, I'm, I'm standing in about knee-deep water and I'm leaning up against the barge like this. And I'm talking to a guy that's up on the barge. And I said, this thing just moved. And he's like, what? I said, this barge just moved. Long story short, they had gotten the pre-sailing drafts wrong by about two feet. So she wasn't near as hard a ground as, as, as what we thought she was. We took off a couple of hundred pounds, you know, and, and uh, lightened her up and got a couple of, uh, couple of high horsepower speedboats and pulled it off until we got to deep enough water that we could get a tow line to her. You know, we had everything set up. We'd been working on this thing for a couple of days, getting the plan together, getting all the equipment out there, getting everything set up. And then, and then the thing just moved. Well, this has been a really great conversation. I've appreciated your time. I've learned a lot. Thank you and Resolve for coming on the program. Yeah, thank you for having us. 
Great to have you. Todd Duke, General Manager of Compliance Services, Resolve Marine. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Tactics Meeting. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Todd Duke from Resolve Marine. If you did enjoy the show, please share it with a colleague, send a tweet or post it on Facebook. Stay safe. Don't do anything stupid. <laughs>